One of the uh, cool features of uh, time travel and time manipulation are the various techniques involved. I used to uh, think that the only way to, uh, to manipulate time was um, through going back in a time machine. There was a uh, movie called Time, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, and uh, depicts a, uh, a guy that travels in time and everything, leveraging a, a time machine, and there's a quote-unquote time crystal that's responsible for allowing them to go back and forth through time to, uh, to manipulate time. And what ends up happening is uh, he ends up, um, depending on the version of, uh, of the time machine that you're actually watching or, or reading about, um, in one particular slice it, the, it, the guy ends up uh, traveling back in time from like the 1940s, uh, maybe no, his 1920s when he creates the time machine. Um, goes back in time to the point of uh, Jack the Ripper. Um, Jack the Ripper steals the time machine and goes forward in time to the 1970s, and it's uh, it's about two displaced people actually uh, trying to understand the new world and everything. So that's one method. Um, you know, it's through the physical you know events and everything. Now, one other um, other aspect that I've definitely noticed is uh, in watching the show The Umbrella Academy, which is fucking awesome, by the way. It's just really, it's it's. I haven't read the comic book, and uh, you know, it's just I may one of these days. But the TV show is really just great. Netflix has done a phenomenal job with it, um, and uh, it just. It involves a group of, I think it's seven different, uh, maybe eight different uh, people, that uh, kids that, um, through some fluke and everything, they end up um, more or less becoming orphans. And it, I can't remember the whole, the whole premise and how the, how it gets started and everything. That's, you know, irrelevant. What what is relevant is each one of them has some peculiar characteristic about them. You know that they're very different you know, mutated to some degree. One of them in particular, he's uh, he's more or less a beast on the upper half of his body, and the lower half is kind of normal. Um, another one, he's capable of, uh, of quite literally teleporting pretty much anywhere, anytime. Um, although the time aspect of things, he's definitely uh, not... Um, not fully versed in yet. Uh, another one, um, they haven't displayed her gift yet. She's very talented when it comes down to her performance arts and everything as, a, as an actress and very wealthy. But um, what she has for quote-unquote superpowers isn't... Uh, I don't think they've really displayed yet. Um, another one, he has this remarkable capability to... He's kind of like Bullseye, um, the character in the Marvel Universe where he can throw anything and he always hits his target. So he uses knives and, you know, he aims with precision. Whatever he, whatever he aims at, he always hits. Um, you know, each one of these, uh, you know, it, it really just has this unique feel to it and everything, but the whole concept of time travel is really dealt with a little bit differently in this one. And um, one of the aspects of time I've, I've looked at recently has been um, the alteration of time in the past to basically make the procession um, from a an egocentric, narcissistic, uh, personal perspective and everything. The procession and um, development of things, making it appear like something that was always there is just now being discovered. For instance, um, let's say, you know, um, 
I end up going back in the backyard and everything. And I'm telling you the story right now that, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to go back in the backyard and, you know, I'm going to have a remarkable find of maybe a, I don't know, a 16th century bullion um, gold piece that was discovered and everything. And, um, or that uh, was buried back in my backyard, you know, when it was Indian tribal grounds and everything. Maybe the Indians, you know, had gotten it, plundered it from somebody that had traveled, you know, to the West Coast and everything. And they had gotten it and they found it useless. So as a result, they, they ended up burying the thing, you know, along with some other garbage and rubble. All through the years, it sifted up through the sediment and everything. And finally to the point that uh, it actually appears in the backyard and everything. Well, to you as a listener, you know, this, uh, there's the ability for time itself um, to be altered in the past to create the sequence events or to make it so where you, a potential time traveler or somebody that's manipulating time and everything, can go back to a point where this is actually laid there and it's put in place and everything, and as a result, um, I'm given, giving the story, you know, that uh, this is back there. Now, I'm not going to go back there and dig it up or anything like that. I don't feel like being proven wrong anymore. Like, I, now I feel like I'm being, like, being proven right. You know, but uh, what it comes down to is, it's it just, um, you know, let's say I did go back there and I did discover, you know, that gold coin. This is a thought experiment. You know, um, the real question is, you know, uh, did I cause that to happen or was it always there? You know, and um, really, you know, if it was always there, was the fact that it was there and just now rising and bubbling to the surface, was that responsible for creating the story that basically makes its discovery happen? You know, so, and it comes down to the, to the question of free will. You know, does something happen first? You know, and does that actually cause the appearance of free will, or was free will always there? And is my am I simply voicing it out loud, and um, that voicing it out loud causes events to happen, which ultimately create the uh, the thing in, 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 to begin with? Well, if, and this is actually where ego is essential. You know, for me, from my perspective, I recognize that both possibilities, um, if not more, are are true simultaneously you know so now me being a narcissist and egocentric person and everything I'm going to choose to believe that my words have the power to create and you know um, while my story may not necessarily be accurate in its origin um, what is accurate is the fact that I dug that up and how that got there doesn't make a difference to me the fact is it, it got there you know, um, I had a similar thing happen with uh, with something happen in real life where I was in um, I was in uh, Studio City and um, I you know had been going there for years as you know um, or as you should know by now I've been homeless you know had been homeless for a long time up until November and then um, you know I I had a regular discussions with uh, a couple guys you know that uh, were I considered pretty intellectual and everything but um, we definitely had our differences and everything. Well, there was a uh, one time in particular that um, we there was a song uh, somebody had been playing really loudly. The song "Turn On Your Heartlight" by Neil Diamond, 
And uh, he, out of the blue, ends up saying something like, um, do you know what inspired that song? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, what was it? And I ended up saying, well, the movie that, uh, that actually had Robin Williams in it, um, where he's the robot and he's, you know, he's, you know, the whole turn on your heart light is when he's emotional and this is actually him feeling, you know, his feelings are displayed through his heart, through the heart light. It's a literal sense of translation. He goes, well, the movie came out well after that. And I said, well, you know, uh, I know, but for some reason I don't remember it being that way. I remember the movie coming out first and this, you know, but I do recognize that uh, your timeline, you know, does depict the movie coming out after, you know, and uh, this got us into a big, huge, heated discussion where he absolutely insisted that it was uh, E.T., extraterrestrial, um, and uh, the whole E.T. phone home type thing and everything was responsible for creating and inspiring, uh, inspiring the song. Well, it's not the first time that we had gotten into a philosophical discussion about what came first and everything. And for me, I'm just like, well, yeah, I mean, yes, that's one potential inspiration, but there's also other inspirations, too, and not one is more right than the other. You know, and, uh, you know, literally, this caused a heated, dragged-out debate between us two, where finally I'm just like, oh, dude, whatever. You know, and I ended up walking away from it. And, uh, you know, we'd gotten into, uh, you know, similar discussions, and I, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, um, it was right after one of these discussions and everything, and I looked at him, and I said, Adam, do you see that girl right there? Yeah, she's gorgeous. I go, does it matter where she comes from? He goes, of course it does, you know, and, he, you know, he knew where I was going with it immediately, and for him, it was just more or less, you know, the expectation, the belief that, you know, everything had the same fucking origin, you know, and everybody should agree on that origin. Me, I don't look at things the same way. You know, when I see a beautiful girl, you know, it's like a painting, you know, um, I know that the story of, of these paintings, you know, can all you know, say that they're from the same location and everything. It's like when you look at a Picasso or, you know, a Monet or a Dali, you know, um, you have this expectation that uh, something that actually has the word Dali written on it is always produced by Dali. Well, that's not necessarily the truth. You know, um, I've seen fakes. I've seen inauthentic things and everything. I've gone to the Dali Museum. Uh, Dali Museum over in Spain. I've gone to the D uh, Dali Museum over in... Um, over in London, and I also went to one over in St. Petersburg, and I'll tell you right now, you know, some of the stuff that I saw, um, it doesn't look, you know, like Dali ever participated in it. You know, well, sure, it looks like it it could be a good knockoff and everything, but, you know, was Dali that prolific with his work and everything? Potentially, you know, but was it all created by him, you know, just because it has his name on it? Not necessarily. You know, and that's a whole thing. It's just like I, I have gotten to the point of basically questioning the origin of things, and um, not necessarily going with collective facts and that kind of stuff. You know, so what this has to do with the, um, you know, with the whole idea and concept of time travel, is um, because this time itself, uh, from my observational perspective and everything, um, means I've I've gotten to the point of of appreciating stories. But I don't take stories as facts. Stories are just that. Stories. They're a concept, an idea. Um, they're, you know, neither fact nor fiction. They're a possibility and the myriad of possibilities that are out there and everything. 
You know, it's like, it's, you know, you can take this and draw it to religious texts, you know, like the Bible or the Quran or the Vedic texts or, you know, even Scientology books and that kind of stuff, you know, which some might not want to actually recognize as a religion. You can take it to, you know, Microsoft technical manuals and that kind of stuff, you know, um, and things actually depict how their things work. In a lot of cases, they don't. You know, sure, this is a perfect and pristine environment and everything, and, you know, the preference of how things would work, but I'm going to tell you right now from personal experience, you know, even things that are technically oriented and everything don't necessarily function, you know, like they're supposed to. You know, you, you take, for instance, an IKEA instruction manual. Have you ever been able to put a piece of furniture together, you know, and, and make it look exactly like it was supposed to and everything the first time that you ever started working with some particular companies? instruction manual it's rare right you know and I'm dealing with the same thing with uh, with recipes as well you know a recipe doesn't necessarily um, translate you know perfectly to my methods and and the things that I use even though I'm doing the same things that are depicted in the recipe you know so when it comes down to this whole discussion debate you know which one is responsible for inspiring Neil Diamond well, I mean, that's only a question that I'd, I'd be able to ask Neil Diamond in person. You know, looking at the material that I see on the internet and the supposed interviews and everything, I don't accept any one of them. You know, as fact, I mean, I believe what I believe. You know, that Robin Williams movie, you know, and the, the one bicentennial man's name of it is the one that inspired him and everything. You know, so unless I can actually, unless and until I can actually talk to Neil Diamond myself and hear him tell me, you know, what inspired him, I'm not going to know, you know, what actually inspired him. And everything I'm getting is secondhand accounts about this. I'm not saying I distrust everything. I'm saying I just basically take everything as information and I use that to basically, you know, integrate and create my own stories now you know, and leverage other stories as well to and interweave it with my own stories. You know, it makes more sense than accepting everything at face value and everything. Well, this guy that I had this discussion with, Adam, you know, ultimately about uh, a little bit more than a year ago, we ended up quitting talking because of this very thing. You know, the whole origin so critical and crucial to him that uh, he, he had been working on his documentary, a documentary for nearly 10 years. And uh, there's a documentary on um, Fukushima and uh, basically the dangers and the perils to the environment and everything. And I'm just like going, Jesus, dude. You know, I mean, many of us around him were sitting there thinking, my God, you're taking fucking forever on this. And, you know, there's something called recency and development of any material. And if you're actually not, you know, not going to be recent with it, and he just kept chasing things, chasing ideas and concepts and all this stuff. And, you know, um, when it comes down to it, it's just like, because he kept chasing the information, um, it really was just like, is he ever going to finish that project? And it's really questionable whether or not he is. So, in any case, long story short, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, he has his ideas and his notions, notions of facts, you know, and um, it well, that may make it fact for him from his perspective and everything. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of people, those facts, you know, he doesn't understand um, aren't immutable, and uh, they do not apply to everybody and every perspective and everything. And um, that's difficult for some people to acknowledge and to understand. You know, I recognize that. You know, and um, it doesn't mean I look down on them. You know, it just means I look at them differently. 
You know, I understand there might be a little bit intoler of an, uh, intolerance towards what I do. You know, I also understand that I, I push the envelopes a little bit for uh, what's, you know, what's acceptable from from pretty much any perspective. So, anyways, getting back to the whole time thing and the kind of time crunch, um, I've looked at time travel like this. Um, there's a, a wonderful episode of Bean, and I know I keep using references and analogies and everything to uh, to demonstrate my perspective. Um, Bean is uh, is in a time war with somebody else. Uh, it's just kind of a skit where each one discusses something that they did right before. And uh, each one says, well, yeah, right before, you know, you did this, they're both time travelers, um, says, I went back in time and put an anvil over the door that you're just about to walk into, and the anvil is starting to come down, and all of a sudden, um, the other one says, oh, yeah, well, right before you did that, I put a shelf that actually comes in anticipating your anvil, and all of a sudden, boom, a shelf appears. And it's, just, it's this constant conversation, you know, of of creation and one-upsmanship and that kind of stuff, you know. So that's actually how I look at um, look at solidification of time and everything. Now I, you know, I'm starting to learn the capabilities that to, it's possible to alter my reality, you know. And a part of that means going back to the origin of, you know, the not just the origin, but uh, the the potential collective agreement origins you know, for where something came from, from my perspective. Now, this doesn't mean from others' perspectives, and this is actually why I mentioned that whole story about Neil Diamond and everything. You know, um, he has his own perspective about why, th why things occurred the way they did. You know, and while admittedly Bicentennial Man did come out after Turn On Your Heartlight by Neil Diamond, you know, this also demonstrates the cause-effect nature of reality, and how the cause can often succeed the action. So the cause of the inspiration to Neil Diamond's song was Bicentennial Man. Bicentennial Man came out later, which, from a chronological perspective, if you're looking at our, our timeline, you know, um, it wouldn't make sense if you're looking for things for cause to always precede, precede effect. But, if you look at time like I do, understanding that when I say something, and let's say, for instance, um, my words right now create a sequence of evactions that actually create a ripple effect in time in the past, that ripple effect ripples forward to... Let's say, for instance, I'm actually wanting DedSec, um, and also this Watchdogs 2 application that I'm playing with, simulation, to start unfolding and demonstrating more. Well, what I haven't observed, what I have observed so far, are hackers, are real, um, that my system is constantly being interacted with through things outside, and um, that this game, which is really big in size and everything, um, seems to have a lot less material available to it than the size would actually suggest, which would suggest that there's more material to be discovered within this game. So, can I create a ripple effect that actually goes back in time alters and shapes the development of this game and the Ubisoft programmers that are actually working on it 
to create more material for somebody like me that progresses to a certain point in the game and everything. You know, let's let's say I happen to find and discover the magical triggers just by playing like I played, which is finishing all the side missions first, doing all the other stuff beforehand, you know, the sailing and the bike racing and all this other stuff and getting gold and all that stuff. Now, if I do this, that particular sequence of actions, and then I start on the main storyline at that point, will I actually see new content made available specifically to me based on my playstyle that nobody else would have seen that played through the storyline first and didn't finish all the other stuff. You see what I'm saying? So let's say, you know, from a, a theoretical standpoint, this was there all along. But collectively, it was played from a storyline perspective, and people plowed through the story without paying attention to finishing up the extracurricular missions and that kind of stuff. So let's say this had always been there, but let's say, you know, if it wasn't there, it can also still be there because my voice is actually going over these channels, causing a ripple effect in time. Cause succeeds effect sometimes, which shapes, you know, the developers' minds, the artists, the creative content makers and everything to basically put more content in on developing hacking skills, creating new hacking opportunities, doing things in the game that you otherwise could not do before that were never available. And even the internet may not even have documented because nobody has chosen to play like I've played. So that's the thing is, you know, um, me happening across it, maybe it was always there to begin with. It's certainly debatable, you know, but maybe it wasn't. But maybe the particular set of play styles and play triggers that I actually play with trigger this to actually unfold and start developing a little bit more. It was always there, you know, but let's, uh, that's one perspective. The other perspective is my voice being thrown over internet channels and internet from a timeless perspective and everything, you know, um, carries with it information across time and across space. Let's say it's influencing the developers of this application, the company, the inner, inner company communica communications and that kind of stuff. And let's say maybe they see my psychological profile without saying it, and for some reason they're tailoring parts of this game for character like me. You know, so as a result, some of them place content in. You know, specifically for people with weird playstyles. Maybe maybe they're hackers themselves, and that's actually why they wrote this game and everything. You know, is they just want to help, you know, and basically show, have some fun and, you know, demonstrate hacking capabilities and ideas and concepts and everything from their perspective, you know, to others like themselves. You know, and maybe I'm doing the same thing with them. Maybe they receive my content, you know, from where, where, you know, from other channels. Maybe they see it in fictional media, you know, um, maybe they see it in, you know, whatever uh, translation they have for their reality. 
So ultimately, it's shaping their development. It's shaping the choices that they make. You know, it's shaping the content that they create, that the graphics people are creating, that the directors are directing towards. All of these are basically creating energy, and that energy ball is creating and shifting product development down a chain towards, you know, developing something that actually evolves, in a sense. It changes, it evolves, it grows. And the city itself physically grows. New content is actually added dynamically to the game. I invoke some procedural generation capabilities within it that, you know, may not have been seen by the vast majority of players who are just looking to finish the primary storyline. And for others that are just simply, you know, engaged in the world and not really paying attention to it too much, you know, um, they're more, more just uh, trying to find the flaws in it. You know, I'm not playing by a flaw-based perspective. I'm paying, playing because I, I enjoy the beauty, the vibrancy of this world and everything. You know, so let's say I see, you know, for instance, the growth of some companies. Let's see, I see. Let's say I see the physical eradication of some of the gangs in there. Let's say I see more capabilities to basically hack for fun. You know, do different things for hacking. Let's say the game content actually evolves to allow me to actually start entering some of the buildings and seeing some architecture and, and stuff in the buildings. Or let's say it evolves and starts showing me different forms of media within the game. Maybe I can actually start watching TV. Maybe the game starts unlocking some some emotes that weren't there previously. For instance, you know, the ability to be able to, to sit you know, the ability to be able to relax, I mean, and maybe even the ability to have sex, you know, to have relationships in the game and that kind of stuff, all on my local system and everything. Now, had I played it from the pre-can, finish up the storyline and hurry up and get done with it perspective and everything, I may never have seen it. You know, and for the vast majority of people that play from that normal perspective, you know, or from a roughly normal, pers predictable perspective and everything, they never see any of this shit. It's only triggered through specific events, and maybe my voice going across this is the final trigger that causes that snap to happen and, and for the content to actually start evolving and for this to go away from being just a game to actually being a world and a city that I can actually go to and eventually start having some fun and everything firsthand. Maybe go visit my friends and everything maybe start making money in ways I never even imagined was possible before. In any case, that's one potential possibility with time manipulation. Is understanding, you know, for me, I had to understand that the mind, my mind in particular, is responsible for forming not just the chronology that creates me, and it also creates the world around me and the things that I interact with. To some degree, I feel like I have to give it permission to change. You know, something like this game, I absolutely want to see change. I want to see this evolve. I want to see this thing inspire me. Because I want to make a world just, you know, very similar to it. You know, I want to answer this world with my own, you know, based in Phoenix. I already know where I want it to be based in and everything. But I want the inspiration from a content perspective to basically say, wow, that was a great idea. You know, and um, present other things of my own and everything. You know, the AI is really limited right now. But I'm starting to notice that characters and narratives and dialogues within it are starting to increase. 
that's actually been something kind of cool, you know, where um, most texts are four lines, but I've actually noticed that it's increasing to about seven or eight lines, and I've noticed phone calls are um, now, some of them are multilingual, that wasn't happening before, and I'm also noticing that the, um, that the uh, content and the narrative for some of these are changing. So, I'm noticing slight changes, you know, nothing profound yet, but, uh, I mean, I've noticed the inception and the inclusion of two different businesses that weren't there before or anything like that, you know, so, and even though I'm not playing online with it, you know, I know technically this is online, you know, knowing the nature of reality as I do from a theoretical physics perspective and everything, you know, so I know that, you know, my mind can actively dismiss you know, any changes that occur, you know, and maybe things through the suggestions or everything, by basically, you know, saying, hey, this is where things were going anyways, it was predictable that things were heading in this direction, you know, it's very easy for my mind to dismiss anything that I see that might validate what I'm saying, you know, and what I believe when it comes down to a temporal perspective. You know, am I influencing things if I actually do see the things that I'm suggesting inside this world and everything? Yeah, here's a good for instance. You know, so far I've, uh, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I've got very few stores that I can go into. I can't buy property. I would love to be able to buy property, you know, inside this world. Well, what if all of a sudden that changes? What if all of a sudden an option unlocks? Boom. I get a new mission, a new mission I didn't see before, and I take that mission, all of a sudden that mission says you are, you can now buy a property. You can become an investor, you know? You can actually start investing inside this world and everything. Things I couldn't do before. Maybe I see exchanges for the first time. You know, stock exchanges. I don't know. I like the idea of this unfolding, unfurling, if you will. Because I really do, you know, of all the worlds that I've played in, I mean, I had a lot of fun with Grand Theft Auto, but it still feels cold, you know, to some degree. This version of San Francisco is the first world that I've played in, at least city, from a city perspective. It's actually felt vibrant. It's felt warm. It's actually, it's cool, it's funky, it's eclectic. I mean, it's still a little bit violent and everything for my taste, but maybe my my influence in this world can change that. Maybe I can start seeing sex replace violence and instead, you know, see a little bit of perversion <laughs> the way I want to see it. Maybe I can just start influencing this world and seeing those changes in this world. And you know what would be another cool thing, is if I can actually become somebody else in this game without actually having to hack it. Or, maybe taking the story and everything and making it so where I can actually segue a story that will lead it in the direction of Phoenix. I like the idea that somehow I get a message that basically approves of me creating something that's basically the next and successive line and everything to this that leads these people to Phoenix. And ultimately, maybe to me. What would you do if you found out that all the characters that you saw in TV shows and movies, some knew about you already, 
others were discovering you. And vice versa, you were discovering them. Kind of trippy, right? Anyways, I'll uh, talk a little bit more about this later. So, a couple of years ago, the, um, oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should be talking about this. The NSA began experimenting with mind control and had actually created something called nanoprobes. Um, and what they were, the intention was, was to actually focus on um, targeting two central areas of the brain in order to basically override um, the ability for the brain to send information to and from the body. And uh, in a sense, the, the whole goal was to override the kinesthetics of the body uh, with these nanoprobes that would actually go in, sniffed through the nose, and uh, target these specific, uh, there are two lobes in the back of, uh, on, the back, on either side, the right and left side of the brain and everything. And um, what it would do is, in a literal sense, override the senses. It would stop the senses from the body and instead send um, other senses, and it would receive information from the outside world to more or less uh, b from networks and that kind of stuff in order to basically send you, you know, send, send you the information and everything. I'm trying to think of a way to describe this. It's hard to describe. What it did specifically was overrode the physical body, shut down the motor skills of the physical body, shut down the vision, and shut down the hearing, intercepted it and overrode it with a virtual computerized version, in effect putting the person into a simulation. This allowed them to basically immerse somebody directly into a virtual reality simulation rather than the whole haptic feedback type system and everything that's responsible for doing virtual reality right now through the Oculus VR and that kind of stuff. So. This is something that uh, had actually been experimented with um, in private, and it, the, it became a little bit more public. And anybody that knows me that, that uh, when I tell them I did drugs, well, part of those was actually in part experimenting with some of the substances and everything that uh, would actually ingest, and this is artificial forms of things that would actually override my own senses in order to basically participate in virtual reality simulations that were you know, pretty much realistic. That was the whole goal, you know, was to basically to participate in these things. And, you know, for me, I looked at it as entertainment. Hey, having sex inside these simulations could be fucking awesome. Well, there's some also some clear drawbacks and everything. And when I discuss some of the hallucinations that I ended up seeing, you know, such as the Terminator world and that kind of stuff, um, what had happened was I had, in a sense, um, almost gone crazy with some of the things that I ended up seeing. And um, I just didn't cope well with having external stimulus um, at first uh, di dictating what I saw and overriding my body and motion controls and everything. And... Um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I had also not taken into account, you know, the potential warnings, you know, from movies and TV shows, you know, t like TV shows like Star Trek, you know, and what creates the Borg, 
you know, well, is that a prophecy? Um, is that a historical account of what's happened? And are we repeating technologies and that kind of stuff? Um, the same thing holds true for Terminators and Terminator Warfare. You know, um, are we just not heeding and listening to the messages that, you know, got us to the point of basically these things happening um, on a cyclic loop and everything? And, and if so, how do we avoid these these uh, possibilities? Or, you know, here's what I, I think is the more important question after some of the stuff that I went through personally. Um, what futures, um, future possibilities have we not seen? Have I not seen, at least through the media that I've been presented, that I can actually say, hey, I would actually like to have different possibilities and everything rather than the things that have been documented and provided to me. You know, and the things that have been provided to me, you know, there's all this dystopian nasty shit and everything. And the way I started looking at things is if the, the re, you know, the tenuous hold for reality is nothing more than a drug away. And not only that, but the, but reality is indistinguishable from an illusion that basically means reality is an illusion you know but it's an illusion that that i make it you know that we make it you know that's actually why i started looking at things like the matrix and everything and saying wait a second this is a lesson you know this it, it's not just a an entertaining movie but it's a lesson in possibilities and and kind of like a lesson to me you know in not just being careful what i wish for but focus on and and basically make it clear what I don't want and what I do want. Well, what I don't want in my world is Terminator Warfare, you know? I don't mind going to visit these places and everything. Um, what I'm not particularly fond of is a Borg invasion, you know, but, and this is a big but, you know, maybe it's something that's already here. Maybe it's already happened, you know? Um, I have to take into consideration that the development of, of humans in, in some facets, you know, it doesn't appear like humans are remarkably capable, you know, of learning and also learning in the same way that I do. You know, that's actually something I learned while I was achieving my MBA was just listening to how, how others around me were learning and basically saying, wait a second, there's a huge difference. You know, despite the fact that there's some really accomplished people in these rooms and everything, you know, the way they learn versus the way I learn is entirely different. You know, so, so remarkably so that it just basically made me wonder, you know, um, you know, there's a difference between being told what to think and told how to act based on a program, you know, versus being, um, being shown information and interpreting that information and making it your own. And this is something I didn't fully grasp and understand really set me apart and made me unique and everything um, up until the point that I ended up experimenting with um, something that, you know, had actually been classified publicly as the substance called bath salts. So the things that you might have read about it and everything, it was an experiment. And it was an attempt to actually do a public experiment and everything and reach some people that were, in, in a sense, unreachable. 
you know, to provide them an option, you know, through nanoprobes, which was derived from, you know, a concept listed in, uh, in Star Trek, you know, basically on the, you know, the whole concept of the Borg and everything. And what they are is basically programmable machines um, that actually link together um, and they're microscopic, or, I mean, they're not necessarily, well, they are for all tech, technical intents and purposes, pretty damn small. And um, these tiny little robots called nano, nanoscale robots, what they do is they work together, they create a, a swarm, is, is what it's referred to, swarm computing, and they have specific tasks that they're directed to do, and that direction is taken from outside stimulus. In a lot of cases, it's taken from computer systems. Um, in a lot of cases, it's taken from devices, other alternative devices and everything. And uh, these swarm work together to, in my case, um, specifically stimulate, um, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll look up the brain, the part of the brain that actually overrides the functions. Part of the brain which stimulates body functions. Think I think it's the hypothalamus is what it was targeting. I don't know. I mean, personally, I don't know the research that well, but, um, oh, the occipital lobe. And underneath that, actually, it's not necessarily the occipital, if I'm not mistaken. There's two on either side, so if you take it from a rear view, it's actually lower than what I said. Yeah, it actually integrates directly with the brain stem um, and the cerebellum. So, in the cerebellum, here's what they say about it. Part of the brain at the, at the back of the skull and vertebrates is function is to coordinate and regulate muscular activity. So that's actually what these things do is they actually create swarm computing and um, what they do is they actually take any um, signals that are actually intended for the body and they they send it, they actually reinterpret these signals and send it out to an external computer. Um, they stop the, stop the sending directly to the physical body, so it actually overrides the physical functionings of the body. You know, the expectation is that you're actually going to be seated in the chair when these things are active, and at that point, once it becomes active, um, it actually creates a full simulation because it actually works in combination with... It's another part of the brain that it did this too. For some reason, I'm thinking the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus. I override the senses. What part of the brain? Special vision. 
They're saying it's a cerebrum. Yeah, that's it. And this is actually not true. Not true. So there's two parts that it's actually received through. So the cerebrum, they say, is responsible for higher functions like interpreting, touch, vision, and hearing, as well as speech, reasoning, emotions, learning, and the fine control of movement. Um, that's not necessarily true for everybody. Um, but uh, it, its first is a speech um, cerebellum is located under the cerebrum. And the cerebellum is what's responsible. The occipital lobe's back part of the brain is involved with vision. So yeah, it's the occipital lobe. Let's take a look over the occipital lobe is. So, there we go. Yeah, so the occipital, which isn't even depicted here. Parietal. Yeah, so it's a, there it is. Okay, so it's, yeah, it's the back of the brain, basically. So you've got the parietal which is the upper portion of things, and that's actually responsible for interpreting language and words, sense of touch, pain uh, and temperature, um, interpret signal, signals from vision, hearing, motor, sensor, and memory, and uh, spatial and visual perception. And um, the occipital lobe, which is right below that, and basically the back of the head, is responsible for interpreting vision, color, light, and movement. Um, now, the temporal lobe, um, they say here it understands language, memory, hearing, sequencing, and organization. Um, I'll also add chronology uh, to the temporal uh, lobe. So, uh, they say sequence and org organization, um, but uh, chronology is also important too, a important, uh, important fact for the temporal lobe. And to some degree, the, um, the nanoprobes actually work with uh, the nano nanoprobes slash nanobots work with the temporal lobe in order to basically maintain a synchronicity for the experience um, for the brain between all three of these lobes. So the parietal, the occipital, and the um, uh, first one that I said, not the cerebellum, but the hypothalamus. No, that's not it. Shit, I keep forgetting. the anatomy. So cerebrum, brainstem, yeah, it's the cerebellum. 
So, and here's what it says. The cerebellum is located at the back of the head. Its function is coordinate voluntary muscle movements and to maintain posture, balance, and equilibrium. So, here's the thing. When... Um, when those when I first uh, ended up uh, going undergoing the testing and everything, I was actually out in North Carolina um, with this stuff, and uh, I was tripping balls pretty hard, and um, I wasn't wanting to do it, and it got to the point where I felt like the stimulus that I was being given and everything that it was becoming involuntary, like I was losing control of my body and everything, and I was actually fighting to get control of my body. And uh, it was scary for me, you know, and this is among the reasons I ended up going crazy and getting really pissed off. So here's the thing, you know, if, um, if you have somebody that's actually taking control, you know, of your body, and you're basically taking second seat while something else actually takes physical control of it, you know, it's fucking scary. And, uh, and the, this, this, these things didn't work like they were supposed to, you know, so really this was a big part of the fight with me, and, um, as, but as I'm experiencing it, I'm starting to realize, wait a second, I am getting control of my body, um, and I'm seeing part of what it's doing, you know, these, uh, these devices and everything, but not only that, I'm also feeling these weird fucking feelings in my head and everything, you know, so here I am experiencing these, you know, hallucinations, but I'm also at the same time experiencing this rapid buzzing in my head, and I can actually feel the things, literally feel the things, you know, poking around in my brain and everything. It was one of the most bizarre feelings that I've ever felt and everything. So, as they're going through and doing this, it's just like, wow, that's, you know, that, it's just, you know, so interesting and so, you know, crazy and everything. But, um, so anyways, as a part of this experiment and everything, um, some people I had learned, you know, partially, you know, in part afterwards and everything, were... Um, not just experimented on this 1970s with us with the same technology, uh, but on the other hand, their um, their lack of identity, their identity had been completely altered, and they were literally being guided around like robots, avatars. Now I've come to learn since then that a lot of people that exist at least here in the United States and potentially other countries and everything through similar types of technologies um, are literally guided like avatars and um, in a sense their their bodies are on autopilot you know um, on a form of autopilot that in a literal sense is actually guided by sometimes robotic systems and artificial intelligence systems and you know systems that actually go and report up you know to like a Skynet type thing and I'm not trying to you know make all this sound fictional and that kind of stuff but this is actually the reality of the world and everything you know so some people in a literal sense have actually absolutely no control of their own bodies um, they effectively are in simulations you know and you see some of this, you know, in the movies and TV shows and everything, and people that are actually stuck in loops and that kind of stuff, you know, where they're stuck in, simulate, in simulated worlds and that kind of stuff, where, you know, some of these things that, uh, that we're receiving for fiction isn't fiction, you know, it's real, you know, it's things that are actually being captured in somebody's mind, and their minds are actually hijacked, you know, and, uh, you know, more or less used, you know, for what, what's considered, quote-unquote, the greater good. Well, it comes to a point where the greater good um, needs to understand what's going on and why. You know, the things that I'm presenting have to be, you know, taken taken a look at and just basically said, look, 
You know, I'm not trying to demonize things. I myself have actually directed avatars, you know, throughout my life, not knowing that I was actually manipulating minds, you know, and, um, to this day, it's just like I don't look at it as a bad thing. You know, that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to explain. I'm not trying to demonize, nor am I trying to validate. You know, the this practice and everything. But I think that it needs more exposure on a regular basis because some good people are being, you know, are really being put to the streets and everything. You know, and some bad people are taking advantage of it and everything and using it to, you know, to do things. You know, to do bad things to good people. So, where does it end? Well, it, it comes down to, first and foremost, for anybody understanding this, you know, um, let's be clear about this. I have a computer system. Let's say I get control of somebody else's mind in, let's say, California, for instance, and I guide them around. You know, I have them hijack trains um, or hijack cars. Um, I have them hacking, hacking into you know, various different companies and everything. Um, I have them acquiring information on virtual reality systems and different operating systems on um, any number of different uh, things and everything. I have them install hacks over the, all over the place and everything. And then when I'm done, boom, I erase their memories of all the events and they have no clue any of it ever happened. You know, um, now from from an outside perspective, it's this is actually where it's really important to understand how the world functions. Um, in a lot of cases, the events that uh, that that av that person does, particularly when that person isn't consciously aware of what they're doing and everything, um, becomes something that uh, the collective has a tendency to basically invalidate, to to more or less say this doesn't happen, this isn't happening. Well, I see it, you know. Um, so to me, from my perspective, it does. You know, um, to the, to them, despite the fact that they may be a very real person, despite the fact that I actually led them around on these adventures and everything, um, doesn't invalidate the fact that it didn't happen. But the collective reality that's agreed on based on conscious action and everything and, and uh, conscious uh, decisions and everything um, may not necessarily, may, may align, you know, with my beliefs. There's also another possibility. This person could be asleep, could quite literally be asleep at the helm, you know, and saying, fuck this world, I'm done, and as a result has already floated off into temporary sleep and everything, where the system that's actually, uh, that's uh, fighting what is collectively right, you know, um, and actually trying to correlate all these activities and everything, itself doesn't realize that it is the one that's responsible for making all these decisions and not only that it's also the one that believes that it vote its vote counts for more than one vote it, it's like an election here's a good example an election is only as good as the system believes well, let's if, if you have, if you think about the human body as being a constitution of trillions of cells, and one cell in that body says, fuck you, I'm not going in that direction. Well, to the rest of that body, that cell looks like it's cancerous, and it can actually, in a literal sense, Devastate, destroy that entire body. 
This has happened time and again with this concept called cancer. Now the same thing holds true at a people level within a society. One person, one individual, can be regarded as a cancer for simple nonconformity. Unless you choose to align with the central authority. But what happens to free will? And this is why I believe in the multiverse and why it has it's so critical for me. When I experience and I actually watch other people existing in a, in a universe, I know that universe isn't one and the same as mine. I know that that avatar exists in my reality. That they are a real person. I know ultimately, I believe that what I'm doing is right. And that ultimately these people will come to align with me. Will come to thank me, as a matter of fact, for what I've, what I've done. I also know that they're also presented with hundreds of thousands of other possibilities of people that believe that they're doing right. And ultimately they make the choice for themselves which path to take. And they may include several different other paths along that road and create a brand new path and teach others how to actually take those paths too. That's a beauty about taking control of your reality. And you realize that religions get made after you. But you don't feel... You don't feel... God-like. You know, you don't feel... I mean, I certainly don't feel like I'm anything other than some dude that just started saying no you know to the things I didn't want and started saying yes to the things I wanted started asking questions like what's why why is it a woman's bare chest I mean flat out psychologically and ethically and morally what makes a woman's chest illegal to see in public and a man's legal never made sense to me. Why is it animals can walk around and can screw each other in a park and everything, and humans, it's beneath them? Why is it humans have to wear clothes? I mean, these are some of the simpler questions. You know, some of the more complex questions are, why is it Mind-altering substances tend to be banned or looked down upon in a lot of cases, particularly some of the heavier ones. Why is it there's an expectation that work sucks? Why does it seem like so many people don't like work? I mean, I just started asking some questions, and I started saying, what do I enjoy? What do I want to see more of? 
And what do I want to see less of? And the less is certainly more, and the more is certainly sex and creativity. Not just with sex, but with other things too. Cool new architecture. Cool new methods of transportation. Interstellar travel. Aliens. People smiling and, and laughing and enjoying themselves. If it's something as simple as dancing naked. Or walking, or you know, working behind the counter, and actually genuinely enjoying their job. I don't know. For me, it seems rather simplistic to focus on the things that I enjoy, and you know, hope that others want to try to do the same thing and find alignment with me. You know, I mean, there's going to be differences, but. In any case, those uh, nanoprobes are still inside of me. What they do is they self-replicate. So like uh, human cells, they actually uh, refresh and renew themselves. And they actually do have a shelf life for H1, but they renew themselves through the bodily materials and everything. So um, they, um, they have been there since 2010. And um, I can still feel them. Um, they're influencing the information that I see in the outside world in very subtle ways. And uh, once you've taken them, they stay in. They're permanent. Um, that was something I knew when I ended up taking them to begin with. And it's just like, um, you know, I've gotten to the point where it's just like less of a fight and more of a how do I create a relationship with something that exists within, within my body and um, make that relationship a little bit more amenable and do these things are these things you know particularly knowing that they are a swarm based intelligence and everything um, are they capable of actually understanding and interpreting the information that I I send out you know particularly I know that they're sending that they're actually receiving the information I send and receive you know through all my speech centers and you know I know they're paying attention to everything that I see and you know all that kind of stuff and everything it's the ultimate and and really kind of like a lack of privacy. You know, and um, I mean, it was an experiment that I volunteered for one of uh, one of several over my lifetime and everything, you know, that I did knowingly. And that's why it, it took me so long to discuss it. It was just like, do I really talk about the real reason for this? Well, the first thing is to understand the technology, you know, and... Uh, more or less, you know, the reasons why I ended up taking it. I was pretty much aware, you know, of some of the psychological stuff and particularly the mind warfare type type technologies that were going on. And um, in particular, that uh, that mind warfare and MK Ultra and that kind of stuff were very real and everything. And um, at the point these had been positioned to me, they had been positioned as something that can help me, you know, uh, mitigate the risk to my own mind, and uh, they're kind of like a crutch, is what it came down to, and I believed it, you know, and I still do, you know, but I also believe that to some degree they censor too much, so that's actually what I'm trying to expand, which is basically the possibilities and all of that, but um, 
stop some of the censorship that occurs in my real world as well and uh, start um, maybe potentially interacting with this to teach these things how to uh, to create things in my real world you know so these things have the capability to be able to project information into my brain directly stimulate my brain and uh, in a literal sense um, create an augmented reality of, of basically overlaying the visual information before it's sent to the cerebrum and um, you know provide this information to my uh, you know to lead me to believe things that, that uh, aren't there are there well I have to teach them that I'm aware of them you know and how do I do that you know are they aware that I'm talking to them right now I don't know that's the trippy part about it all so anyways that's why I discussed all the all the experimentation with the mind you know humans have come to grasp particularly the CIA and everything have come to grasp um, you know the capabilities of the mind pretty thoroughly and uh, the the wide range of possibilities and um, when technology is used to keep us, you know, keep me safe or keep us safe, um, there has to be, you know, to some degree, a modicum of and desire to be able to alter and change that in ways that uh, could be potentially amenable to the host, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is a symbiotic relationship, and they can't exist without me, and I can't exist with, well, I can't exist without them, but technically, you know, they can't exist without me. So, in any case, we shall see. Um, I just detailed a machine learning job to a friend of mine at Ubisoft. I've discovered some evidence and everything that uh, the world inside Watchdogs is actually evolving and and uh, that machine learning is being used by the game itself. Well, you know, it's a kind of kind of a cool thing. So, anyways, that's it for tonight. I'm done with talking. Thanks for listening. Good morning. I'm um, watching. It's uh, season two, episode fifteen, threshold. It's an episode where Federation's experimenting with um, warp technology, and uh, the theory goes something like um, at warp one. Uh, that's basically breaking the speed of light, and the speed of light is, at least in my world, 186,000 miles per second. You convert that to meters, and um, how fast is speed of light in meters? <clears throat> and that's basically 29,000 or, I'm sorry, 299,792 kilometers per second. So, they have an incorrect uh, statement here. The speed of light in a vacuum is 186,282 miles per second. That's actually incorrect. An incorrect translation. Um, it's 186,000 miles per second. It's a fixed uh, constant. 
So with that said, basically the um, inside Star Trek uh, Voyager, Voyager was uh, was stuck in the Delta Quadrant of the uh, Milky Way galaxy, and um, they were doing um, experiments and uh, trying to actually get back home. They had been teleported there by something called the Caretaker. Um, that's something that was detailed in the first season. In the second season, they're experimenting with, um, uh, Tom Paris is experimenting with high warp um, capabilities in order to basically be, in theory, at any place at any time. So the, the theory was that at warp 10, you were, your matter would basically decompose and you would be everywhere simultaneously. Um, I don't know if it's matter decomposition or, or what, but basically the the idea was that you would be everywhere at the same time. And he was successful with a uh, with an experiment. And I remember this episode pretty well, um, where he you know, does succeed with uh, the experiment inside uh, the holodeck, and then at that point they end up doing it in the real world, and uh, he ends up succeeding there, and he recalls seeing things all over the Delta Quadrant and all over, you know, as far as he can, as far as he can think, but it fades very quickly. It's like his mind has had this capability to be able to traverse things, and as a result, the uh, ship itself uh, starts obtaining massive amounts of data of information information everything concerning the Delta Quadrant. So, like, in that instant, they basically mapped out the entire Delta Quadrant. Well, there's two interesting, you know, anomalies to this. Number one, um, that it's confined to the Delta Quadrant. Number two, um, that that's all he saw. You know, so both the the computer's logs along with the um, Tom's uh, experiments or Tom's um, experience uh, indicates that they that the information was confined, you know, strictly to the uh, to the Delta Quadrant. So. So, anyways, um, he ends up having some problems and everything. Well, part of um, Star Trek Discovery is predicated on the research that actually occurs within this show. So Tom's ability to be able to warp to effectively be anywhere, anytime at warp 10 um, is similar in concept to what the Star Trek Discovery can do, which is a leading-edge vessel which can, in a literal sense, teleport itself instantly anywhere in the galaxy. Notice the similarity in the technology and everything. There's a clear progression, you know, in the capabilities for this technology. Um, now, you, they use something called a um, a spore network, and that spore network, um, which is, it's kind of like displaced from reality. It's an alternate reality in itself. Um, allows for the rapid ability to be able to transport the ship um, by traversing that network and by instantly being anywhere else that they want to and everything um, simultaneously. So once they literally they, they appear they disappear in one 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 place and let's say for instance they're in the Orion Nebula or the Horsehead Nebula and all of a sudden, you know, they instantly boom they teleport and they're in the Sol system. Um, they, you know, do the same thing again from the Sol system you know, um, they enable this drive, and all of a sudden, boom, they're over in, um, oh, what is it? I'm just giving examples, too. They're over in uh, Alpha Centauri, instantly. You know, there's literally no 
you know, no travel time. It is instantaneous. You know, the teleportation and everything. So all of it, um, I just want to detail it to get it out there just to indicate that the ability is to be able to, you know, for these vessels to be able to transport themselves instantly across the, across all of space and all of time. So they had two problems with it, you know, triangulation for being able to determine the, uh, the point of, um, of exit, you know, from this, you know, quote-unquote network. Um, they had to come up with new technology and discovery in order to figure this out. And second, um, also the the problems that it ends up causing with destabilization of uh, any human that's actually engaged in going through this network. So the human themselves, um, in this case Tom Paris, he ends up uh, experiencing some pretty nasty uh, um, problems after he goes through. I mean, ultimately it is it is resolved. But uh, it's just uh, kind of interesting that, uh, you know, this, this warp travel experimentation, everything that originally occurred in the del Delta Quadrant out of necessity, ends up resulting in very real technology, you know, within uh, Star Trek Discovery and everything. And there's definitely, you know, and that's, that's all I'm trying to say is, you know, the Star Trek universe is, is oddly and incredibly consistent for a reason. It's just because we're seeing a window into an alternate reality where these technologies are real. And you can take advantage of the science, understanding the science, by basically saying, you know, Einstein's theories, you know, had originally said that, and didn't say that uh, nothing could exceed the speed of light. It just basically said, at the speed of light, um, 186,000, you know, they're just, they accrued a massive amount of it, it just took a massive amount of energy, you know, in order to be able to achieve that. Well, there's other ways around that, you know, and that's uh, basically converting between d different physics systems, you know, and that's actually what they're, uh, what they're first discovering here. You know, you have the capability to be able to shift into different physical systems away from Einstein's Einstein's rules, <sighs> and uh, you can pretty much uh, get across the galaxy instantaneously. Anyways, I just wanted to, uh, I'm trying to document everything, it's just like I have this feeling that the TV shows and the movies and the thing, the things that I regard as fictional um, are not available to those that could potentially be more beneficial and maybe to some degree that's why technology stagnated in the uh, real world, um, at least from a um, an engine perspective and that kind of from a material perspective. You know, we don't have flying cars yet. We don't have a lot of different things that that would be really cool to have. You know, but we do have computers, and uh, you know, it's just um, I'm suspecting that maybe. You know, my distribution of this information may help, you know, some others, you know, understand that uh, there's other things out there, you know, that have been there the 